Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. Darcy, how you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm all right. It's a little hot. <laughs> doing my yeah. thing. It's finally starting to cool down here, which is so much nicer than it has been. Yeah. Now fall is coming. It's not blisteringly hot mm-hmm. anymore, but it's still pretty hot up in my attic recording area. Yeah. All right. Let's jump in <laughs> without further ado. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this article I found was really interesting. How a dick pic helped detectives crack a $30 million celebrity diamond heist. Did you see this? Ooh. Very interesting. Okay, so I guess this all happened in London, but Scotland Yard busted a gang behind the biggest home invasion robbery in England's legal history after one of the thieves could not resist sending a dick pic to a member of staff at a budget hotel. Oh my gosh. So I guess this saga begins with a luxury lifestyle Instagram post. This was just before Christmas in 2019 when Tamara, I don't know how to say her name, Ecclestone? Oh, is she the one whose dad owns, like, the F1? Yes. She okay. is a model. I don't, I don't know how to pr- pronounce her last name either. I know. It's like, a, she's a model and the heiress of the diminutive ex-Formula One boss, Bernie Eccleston. Ecclestone? Eccleston? <laughs> Ecclestone. And she announced that her and her family were going to be jetting off to Lapland for the holidays. And she posted a picture of her daughter, Sophia, in front of a private jet. So I think there's been some kind of warning about doing stuff like this on social right. media. Like, don't post that you're leaving on vacation because then these will know that your house is going to be empty and make it right. break Right, like, don't basically be like, I'm not going to be home for the next two weeks. Right? So I guess yeah. on the night they left, a gang of thieves broke into the home that was located on Billionaire's Row in London. The group was able to swipe around $30 million in cash, watches, wow. and diamonds. Who has $30 million just laying around their house? <laughs> I mean... That's wild. They're like billionaires. So $30 million is probably That's nothing. That's so to them. wild, right? Mm-hmm. But I guess this was even despite the fact that a security guard actually caught three unmasked men around 11 p.m. inside of her dressing room. What? This area is known as the vault after its six-inch steel door had been left unlocked. Which, Why? Evidently, like, you want somebody to come break in? I'm not sure about that. (laughs) But the thieves shoved past the guard and escaped the palatial mansion through a window. So cops from the Mets Flying Squad, which is their kind of crack team that investigates robberies in London, didn't Mm -hmm. have much to go on when they first started out. They had security camera footage from the property's garden that showed the trio kind of taken off. (laughs) Right. Um... And they went past the the little girl's playhouse. The CCTV images then showed the group getting into one of London's famous black cabs. You know, Hmm. those famous black cabs. Mm -hmm. I don't know the famous black cab. I've never been to London, but. I haven't either, but they have, it's like, it's like old timey cars that that they run as black, as taxis and they're all just black. Well, in any case, (laughs) detectives set about contacting the taxi drivers who'd worked in the area on the night of the robbery. Yeah. There was about a thousand of them. And they asked if any of them remembered picking up a group who matched the burglar's description. Luckily, one of the drivers said he had. And he gave these guys information on where he dropped them off, which evidently was a budget hotel called TLK Apartments. Mm-hmm. So they go to the hotel, they talk to the receptionist, and asked her if she'd seen this group of guys staying there. And... <laughs> We all know that people that work in the hotel industry, like, it's not very likely that they're going to remember one person or people that don't necessarily stand out. And Yeah, I mean, that's the same with, like, asking a bartender or a server. Like, they see so many people that it's hard to remember. Yeah. So I think, you know, the odds are pretty low. (laughs) This reception person that was on duty on the night this happened was going to remember them. Right. But... (laughs) So I guess they had this out-of-hours iPhone... Um, which they keep at the desk so that customers or, or people that are staying there can text this number if they have any issues, and one of them did. One of these robbers actually texted a string of lewd messages to the off-hours phone, and oh one of them included a dick pic. 
and <laughs> it's funny. This girl at the front desk saved the man's number as weirdo. So she's like, you know, she, he sends a bunch of pictures to the staff iPhone and she saves the number just in case. I don't know. But luckily that she did because they identified this guy <laughs> through that picture. Wow. And luckily the, fo- the hotel made a photocopy of his photo ID when he checked in. Right. And it was a 23-year-old Italian by the name of Yugoslav Jovanovic. Okay. So, so then once they had his name from the weird dick pics, they were able to track him and his movements when he entered the U.S. And they found that he matched the appearance of one of the men caught on the security cameras during the robberies. And they found that he had also been involved with other robberies, including a $70,000 burglary at a property belonging to the Premier League coach Frank Lampard and about $400,000 at the townhouse of the late Leicester City soccer team owner Vice. I I can't even pronounce his last name. It's got like 100 (laughs) letters and they're all consonants, so I'm not even going to try on that one. But... The investigation ultimately led to this guy being arrested in Italy in October 2020 before being extradited back to Britain in early last year. So he and his associates, which were also arrested, were extradited to the UK. They all pleaded guilty to conspiracy to burgle and were jailed in November 2021. The alleged mastermind of all the burglaries known by over a dozen aliases is said to still be living free after Serbian authorities refused extradition requests. So they got a couple of them, but one of the guys who's like the mastermind still hanging out in Serbia. Is in Serbia? Isn't that wild? Wow. I think immediately when you see the word dick pic in any article, (laughs) your your eyes like, what? Yeah. Let's talk about what has happened in my neck of the woods. Um... So you probably saw the headlines. A 12-year-old girl chewed through her restraints to um, escape a week of captivity in Alabama. Um, On Monday morning, a motorist saw a 12-year-old girl walking along like a rural state highway in Dadeville, Alabama. And this is like, it's kind of near Auburn, but it's probably like 45 minutes to an hour away from Auburn. Um, and it's so is it very super rural. rural? I was just gonna say, like, like really, like backwoods kind of. No, not a lot of like stores. Well, and, so I mean, people out there. Or? There's a like, there's a main highway, but that's not where she was found. So like, I'm not familiar with like, I know how to go in and out of Dadeville because there's a lake there that like a lot of people go to the lake when they're at Auburn or whatever. So I know okay. that part, but I don't know like specifically where in Dadeville she was. So it it is a pretty country rural area, but. So a motorist sees a 12-year-old girl walking on the highway and the motorist, and they have not identified the motorist, but I think that this is very, very impressive and, and, and well thought out. The motorist called 911 and stayed with the, with the girl until the police arrived, um, as opposed to like picking her up and taking her to a station. Because I think that that's, it, it probably made her feel a little bit more safe because she didn't want to get in a car with somebody else, right? So oh. I'm just going to stay with you until the police get here. And then, so, so maybe it was a male right. driver. And okay. so um, the police get there and she takes them back to her, the mobile home where she lived with her mother and brother and her mother's boyfriend. And they find the decomposing bodies of her mother and brother. Oh my God. So the mother had been um, murdered by suffocation the brother had been beaten to death, and the brother was, I think, 14. Um, oh, wow. And they were both dismembered in an attempt to hide, like, cover up the crime. Um, and he, the, oh, boyfriend, it, the boyfriend was the one who did this, and he kept the girl restrained and drugged with alcohol for a week so that she would be more compliant and not fight back and everything like this. She chewed through the restraints that he had put on her and escaped. And that's how she was found walking on the road. She had broken her braces and she had marks on her wrist to indicate that she had been restrained for a considerable amount of time. They believe that she was being, she was held for a week. So they say that that she was abducted July 24th and tied to bedposts. Oh my God. So they find. Can you imagine? 
Yeah, so they find the boyfriend in Auburn. Like I said, it's about 45 minutes to an hour away from Auburn. They find the boyfriend in Auburn, and they arrest him there. And he was then extradited to the county where Dadeville is. is, And he has since appeared in front of a judge, and he's being held without bail. He is being charged with kidnapping. And depending on which article you read, it's either two counts of capital murder and or three counts of capital murder. And I think that's really interesting because most of what I've seen says three counts of capital murder, but they're not explaining what that third count would like is or who the victim is. Yeah. Um, but it might be related to the kidnapping. So they're saying, um, you know, kidnapping and commission or murder and commission of a kidnapping could, could be a capital charge or something like that. Um, okay. The mother's name was um, Sandra Vasquez Seha. She's 34. And they are not identifying her son's name, but the the boyfriend was Jose Paulino Pascual Reyes. He's thirty seven, and there's very little information about what's going on here, other than the girl basically saved her own life by you know that we don't know what was going on. Obviously, he was he abducted her in an attempt to abuse her, um, but we don't really know more than that yet. So that. There's going to be a lot more that comes out of this, and so we'll keep you guys updated. But yeah, but um, shocking story. I wonder what the motive to see is the headline. behind that. Like, why did he do that? Right, because he wanted to have the girl all to himself. Like, yeah, it, there's very little information other than the intent was to violate ugh. or abuse sexually, and he kept her drugs Dis- with alcohol. Disgusting. Um, the whole time that she was, and there's no, we don't know information as far as if this is something that had been happening for a long time prior to the the murders of the family members or if this was the incident that and like if the, there was a catalyst we don't we just don't know so we'll we'll pay attention to this and keep you guys updated but he is currently being held without bail and that is a very good I'm thing i'm pretty sure that guy's going to get some jailhouse justice at some point probably wow Awful, awful, yeah. awful. Um, thank goodness that young girl had the strength and the presence of mind to figure out how to escape from there. Because who knows what would have happened. He could have killed her, too. Absolutely. Awful. Awful, awful stuff. Let's jump into the main case for the day. Okay. I'm going to talk about Thomas Neal Cream. Do you know who that is? I don't know who that is. So before we get into this, because this guy was born in the 1850s. I want to talk about oh. what was going on in the U.S. during that time. We were not in agreement on a lot of things. Yeah, because this was the period right before the Civil War. Yeah. And it, when you ask the average American to think of something from the 1850s, usually they're like, uh, we have no idea. Um, yeah. But it's actually a pretty important part of history. Um, They were the years, the decade, in fact, right before the Civil War began. Um, The Mexican-American War had ended in 1848. And it it provided an American victory and the annexation of much of what is now the Southwest United States, which was California, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. Mm -hmm. So General Zachary Taylor, war hero, had been elected president after the war, but died in July 1850 less than a year and a half into office, which is interesting. And he was succeeded by Vice President Millard Fillmore, who finished out that um, presidency. Yeah. And then lost in the next election to General Winfield Scott, and then Scott lost the presidential election to Franklin Pierce. Yeah. So evidently, according to historians, most of the presidents during this particular period in time were relatively weak executives. That's a quote-unquote relatively Mm -hmm. weak executives. And this was an era when stronger leadership had slowed the drift towards the Civil War. So there was this huge debate, this political debate going on in this time as to whether to permit the institution of slavery in the newly conquered Western territory. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was much argument going on back and forth. And they passed a compromise in 1850. The main provisions established new territories in the West, ended the sale of enslaved people in the District of Columbia, and enacted the Fugitive Slave Act. Yes. Um, It required officials in free states to assist in the return of enslaved people who had self-emancipated themselves and escaped from bondage. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, it, that was a big, big thing back then. It was huge, yeah. And it was really unpopular in the North, um, with abolitionist sentiment further channeled by the 1851-52 publication of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which mm-hmm. was huge as well. Did you ever read that book? I haven't read it. I need to. And then there was Solomon Northup's memoir, 12 Years a Slave, which was written in 1853, which was also a very, very powerful piece of work there as well. Um, So this was, like, very controversial. There's a lot of stuff going on. The Civil War is just basically waiting to happen. And that pretty much that the Missouri Compromise put the Civil War on hold for about a decade. Um, Sort of appeased enough people to kind of keep it from happening. But... It was waiting to happen. Yeah, it was kind of like it did and it didn't. Like it was, it it delayed it, but it was kind of delaying the inevitable. Yeah. So um, fashion during that time was these, you know, big, huge, poofy dresses. Mm -hmm. Um, But they had introduced bloomers for women, which was kind of interesting because there was sort of this advocating for greater rights for women going on as well. And they were kind of a reformed kind of a dress for women with shorter skirts and pant legs. And it was really controversial at the time because women were supposed to be wearing these long poofy skirts to hide everything. And now here they are wearing what is looks like pant legs exposed. Right. You can't wear pants. You can't show your ankles the whole night. Interesting stuff. And then the literature of that time was Uncle Tom's Cabin, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, the Scarlet Letter came out in 1850. Yeah. The House of Seven Gables. Moby Dick. Um, and I say these only because back then that was their form of TV and radio. Like, yeah. there weren't shows on like we have now. So their form of shows were reading these novels. These very not imagine reading novels. The Scarlet Letter for entertainment. No. <laughs> um, the first large-scale wave of non-British immigration continued into the 1850s from the, ni- from the 1830s and 40s. They got a lot of Irish Catholics fleeing the potato famine. Because... 1848 was the Irish potato famine. That's what I just said. Um, so Ireland lost a lot of their population due to famine and also immigration, and a lot of people from Ireland came over to the States around that time. So they've got Germans as well who are fleeing mm-hmm. from the aftermath of the failed revolutions of the, the late 1840s, mm-hmm. and they're flying, they're getting into America in larger numbers as well, and then you've got a lot of influx of people from different ethnic and religious backgrounds that's causing a lot of tension that breaks yeah. out into violence at some points during this very destructive anti-Irish Catholic riots in Philadelphia that happened in the mid-1840s. The new, the new immigrants, particularly the Irish, need cheap labor for the industrialization in the Northeast and Northwest, and they're expanding the railroads. So they're using these Irish immigrants to mm-hmm. get the railroads going. And then there's railroad suburbs that are starting to arise because because um, now finally these railroads are allowing people to commute into cities and so they're, they've got a lot of towns and cities that are springing up outside of the major cities because essentially people had to work in the big cities before yeah. but now that you've got railroads it allows for people to work outside of the cities so that was interesting. Yeah, um, you don't have to live in a port anymore. You can commute and you can have a farm and you can have a lot of land if you want. Right, um, and then you've got the Victorian era going on Mm -hmm. in Great Britain. Queen Victoria is there from 1837 to 1901, and she's got this growing global empire with British control over India. (sighs) After the failed Indian rebellion of 1857 to 1858, and in Europe, Britain allied with France under Emperor Napoleon to support the Ottoman Empire in the Crimean War against Russia. Mm -hmm. The British attack on Russian lines during this war was the inspiration for Tennyson's 1854 poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Have you read that one? I haven't. I had to read that for like ninth grade English or something. I've read a lot of books about 1840. 1848 was a really big year um, in Europe as far as revolutions. Like every country had one. So, but war wasn't consuming everything. They the Great Exhibition of 1851 was held in the famed Crystal Palace and considered the world's the mm-hmm. first World's Fair. And in 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Mm-hmm. And Charles Dickens serialized A Tale of Two Cities. The world grew more connected during this time, not just because of the railroads, but also because of the transatlantic telegraph cable. 
And this was laid by the steamship Great Eastern, and it enabled near instantaneous communication between the U.S. and Europe. So this was a huge period of transition. Yeah. The U.S. and the world as a whole were becoming more interconnected and industrialized, which seems interesting when you kind of juxtapose that with today, right? Right. And then you have the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, and the U.S. is plunged into four years of civil war. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Yeah. And Thomas Cream was born smack dab right in this in um, May of 1850. He was born in Glasgow, okay, which is Scotland, and he was raised outside of Quebec City. Yep. His family moved there in 1854. Oh, okay. So he attended the uh, La Chute Academy, which is no longer a thing. I guess it closed down. And he became a student at McGill University at Montreal. Mm -hmm. He graduated with an MDCM degree in 1876. Mm -hmm. um, his thesis topic was on chloroform. Huh, okay. Which, keep that in the back of your mind. Huh. That he has did, an H.H. Holmes vibe to it. Right? Yeah. I mean, but the thing is, clearly this guy was smart, right? Mm -hmm. Because education was not something that everyone did back then. It was a very, very limited few that were allowed to have education or that right. could afford to have education. Most people in the world, most common people, had to work. And once they either graduated high school and, and many before they even got out of school had to work because their families couldn't, couldn't afford to survive without having all the children working. Right. So the fact that this guy got through school, went to this prestigious academy, and then went on to get a medical degree is, is pretty impressive. He did his postgraduate training at St. Thomas Hospital Medical School in London. Okay. And in 1878, he got additional qualifications as a physician and a surgeon in Edinburgh. So he went back to Scotland for that. So this is a pretty, like, upper crust guy. It sounds as though he was. I mean, yeah. and then for him to get all of these degrees, like, this is a significant amount of education. Yeah. And then after he got done with his qualifications, he returns to North America Mm -hmm. And he wants to practice in a community that needs physicians. And he initially goes to Des Moines, Iowa, and then relocates to London, Ontario. Okay. And Des Moines, Iowa couldn't have been very cosmopolitan back then. I've been to Des Moines. Have you ever been to Des Moines? I've never been to Iowa. I've been to Kansas, which I th to me, it feels like the same thing. Yeah. Sorry. Don't write in. I know they're <laughs> different. But. It's pretty large and spread out now, but it was probably quite significantly smaller back then. Yeah. But in 1876, while this guy is living in Quebec, he meets this woman by the name of Flora Brooks. And they start hanging out. Back okay. then, they called it courting. You had to court right. the person. And it was very, very conservative. There was no kissing. There was no hand-holding. There was no sex. Well, like, it was very, very conservative. It's not discussed. Those things just aren't discussed. Yeah. Well, most people, if you were a good girl, didn't do that. Okay? All right. So, nonetheless, this poor girl becomes pregnant, mm -hmm. and he promises to marry her. But before that happens, he attempts an abortion on her. With her knowledge and consent? Yes, because he's okay. a doctor and a surgeon, right? So he's probably know, told her, I'm qualified to do this, I know how to do this, I can take care of this, it'll be great, don't worry, you know, it'll be easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Not the case. She gets really, really sick, which probably, given the, <laughs> the technology back then, she probably got some kind of an infection. Yeah. Right? Um, he tries, once they find out she's ill, like people are like, hey, this is not cool. And he tries to take off to go to Montreal. But her family is like, oh, hell no. And they catch him and force him to return and marry her. Can you imagine? Whoa. <laughs> like chase him down and make him marry this poor girl, which by then I, I can't even imagine the horror this young woman probably was living through at that time. Seriously. But the day after the wedding, he leaves for England to continue his medical education. And I say continue his medical education in quotes, because I'm pretty sure he would have said anything to get out of there. It oh, sounds yeah. like, right? Clearly he didn't want to marry this girl and this was his way to get out. And her family basically never saw or heard from him again. Lucky for Jeez. her. <laughs> anyway, um, she 
fully recovers but dies of consumption in 1877, which is basically yeah. tuberculosis, right? Yeah. Which is awful, awful, awful way to die. They called it the wasting disease back then. Mm-hmm. And a very large portion of the population was got it, unfortunately. But anyway... So this guy returns to North America in 1878, which is two years after he bailed on poor Flora. And he establishes a medical practice in London, Ontario. Okay. So problem is, he doesn't have a license. (laughs) So Ontario's Mm -hmm. Medical Act um, allows for for an arrest of someone who's practicing without a license. Mm -hmm. And he later pleads guilty to this. But this doesn't deter patients from going in and seeing him in his office what? because he I, probably like barters and like lets people pay with like chickens and stuff. I don't know, but the thing is, back then, like, it's not like you could look somebody up online or yeah. go go find a book and look up some whether somebody has a license or not. You basically hang a shingle outside of your practice, and no one knows whether you're a doctor That's or not. True, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a thing back then to be able to look that up. And it was very hard to find out if people were or not. So the only way that they would probably essentially find out that this guy wasn't licensed is he hurt somebody or somebody became ill and they write a letter and complain about him and somebody looks into it. Right. So if he's just kind of flying under the radar and keeping things low key, then maybe they'd never find him. Because it's not they didn't have insurance, medical insurance back then. So it's not like a medical insurance company is going to find out. When you got medical care back then, you paid out of pocket for it. Yeah. Or with a chicken, like you just said. Right. <laughs> um, so in 1879, Catherine Hutchinson Gardner is found laying dead in a bathroom behind his office. Oh. She w- yeah. She was pregnant and had been murdered with a handkerchief soaked in chloroform. Mm. So just recall, he did mm-hmm. his thesis on chloroform. So evidently he had refused to help her with an abortion and instead urged her to accuse a local businessman of being the father. I wonder if he was the father. I mean, I can't think of a reason, like, why he would do this if that wasn't the case. It seems as though that very likely was the case. But instead, though, he claims she threatened to poison herself when he told her he was not going to perform an abortion. Obviously, abortions were illegal back then. Yeah. And she had written him a letter in which she mentioned the businessman as being the father. So her family says, uh, no. (laughs) And her roommate says, uh, no. And the signature and the handwriting in the letter doesn't match hers. And basically everyone says it's a forgery. Despite the rumors and overwhelming evidence against Cream, authorities don't take any other action, and the what? case is never solved. And I think there's sort of this perception back then that women that got pregnant out of wedlock or that would ask for an abortion were of such low moral repute that right. they weren't worth uh, tracking down. Right. They weren't worth, like pursuing things further or spending a lot of time and energy trying to figure out what happened to them essentially which is just very very sad so then (laughs) cream establishes a medical practice in the red light district of chicago okay so his intent is to offer illegal abortions to prostitutes Uh uh-huh so these are going to be his customers and he has deliberately decided to make these women his customers because a they have money because they're doing street work, mm-hmm. and B, they're going to need him because birth control wasn't a thing back then. Right. Um, and C, they're very likely or very unlikely to report him. Right. Because they themselves are, leave, are living a lifestyle that's against the law. And unfortunately, so, that is still true today. Exactly. But he seems to have picked his quote-unquote perfect victims back then. And they investigate him in 1880 in the summer of 1880, after the death of Marianne Faulkner. So this is a woman that he operated on, and she had obviously died after his botched, botched abortion, but mm-hmm. um, he, ex- he escapes prosecution on that one too. They don't have any, enough evidence. Oh my gosh. Then in December of that year, another patient, Miss Stack, dies after treatment by him, and he tries to blackmail the pharmacist that had filled the actual prescription. So 
My guess is he's probably trying a whole host of different things to try to conduct these abortions. Yeah, he's experimenting. Yeah, he's guessing and sort of botching it (laughs) because these women are dying left and right. In April 1881, a woman named Alice Montgomery dies of strychnine poisoning following an abortion in a rooming house about a block from his office. So they rule the case a murder, but it's never solved. May I ask you a question? Sure. Did this guy ever go to Whitechapel, England by any chance? I'm going to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, essentially... They, this is never solved, and it was never attributed to cream, but the location, the time, and the method, all, they say, make Thomas Neal Cream a likely suspect. Right. But on in July of 1881, Daniel Stott dies of strychnine poisoning in Boone County, Illinois. Okay. So Cream had evidently supplied this guy with a remedy for epilepsy. So clearly he's getting into a little bit of strychnine. <laughs> he's now, now into the poisoning. So he's oh, not just boy. botching abortions. He's poisoning people now, too. Um, the death was actually initially attributed to natural causes, but Cream wrote to the coroner blaming the pharmacist for the death after he had attempted blackmail again. So he, like, protested too much. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, uh, no. And they arrest him. Huh. They arrest him along with Miss Julia A. Stott. Who is this? She had become his, this was his mistress at the time. And she had actually gotten poison from him to kill her husband. Oh, boy. And they prosecuted, and she turned state's evidence to get out of going to jail. Good for her. And basically said, all of this is Thomas Neal Cream's fault. I want him to face the, the music. He needs to face the murder conviction on his own. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in Joliet Prison. Okay. So then Daniel Stott's friends erect a tombstone at his grave, which reads, Daniel Stott died June 12th, 1881, age 61, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. That's what they put on this guy's tombstone. Whoa, that's baller. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So died age 61, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. Anyway, (laughs) um, Cream was released in July of 1891, which... Is very interesting. So he did 10 years? Yeah, essentially. And the governor had commuted his sentence because Thomas Neal Cream's brother pleaded for leniency and said oh. that the authorities had been bribed. Oh or no, no, no. He actually, they said that he bribed the authorities and pleaded for leniency. Oh, for okay. That does track. So he's a doctor. He's a professional. You know, he was just trying to help. He was set up. Here's some money. Let him go. And they do. <laughs> Evidently, Illinois was corrupt even back then. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's why it's called the Windy Sorry. City. Don't write us <laughs> about that. So then using money inherited from his dad, who died in 1887, so, you know, he gets a little money from the dad. He goes to England. <laughs> dun, okay. dun, dun. And he arrives in Liverpool October 1891. Okay. This was three years after Jack the Ripper killings had been committed. So there is a link, and, you know, I think some people very loosely think that he could have been, but, I mean, he was clearly in the U.S. during the Mm -hmm. time that this, the Jack the Ripper killings had happened. So he goes to London and starts hanging out at this 103 Lambeth Place Road. And back then, this area was poor, there was a lot of crime, there was a lot of sex work, it was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, again, picks this area for a very specific reason, right? With the mm-hmm. same reasons that I talked about earlier. 1891, in October of that year, Ellen Nellie Donworth is a 19-year-old sex worker. She receives two letters from Cream and agrees to meet him. He offers her a drink from a bottle. She becomes severely ill that night and dies. Want to guess what she died of? Strychnine? <laughs> yeah, right? How I mean, this I guess? is... Getting a little predictable. So, like, clearly he gets prosecuted for killing people in the U.S. and poisoning people, and he just takes her right over to England. Yeah. Um, during the inquest, Cream writes to the coroner again, offering the name of the murder in return for a $300,000 award. What? But he writes to the coroner, and he says his name is O'Brien, A. O'Brien, detective. 
So he's like claiming to be a detective so he can try to claim this reward. Three hundred thousand dollars in eighteen ninety—that's like so much money. I don't think they had offered that much. I think he was wanting that much. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. He also writes to W. F. D. Smith, owner of the W. H. Bookstalls, accusing him of the murder and demanding money for his silence. So he's running all over the place trying to bribe people and trying to like blackmail people and does that work when the other person has like seemingly no connection to the crime at all uh i don't think so <laughs> okay but in october of that year cream meets with another prostitute slash sex worker named matilda clover and he offers her some pills and tells her hey go ahead and take these before you go to bed and it will take care of your problem what's her problem well, she's clearly pregnant She's a a sex worker, and he's, let Uh, me take care of your problem for you. So she then begins experiencing these really bad spasms, and later that night she dies. But they assume that her death is heart failure due to alcohol withdrawal, because they don't know about the pills that Cream has given her. And Cream (laughs) writes a letter, calls himself M. Malone, and chats it out with the prominent physician, Dr. William Broadbent, claiming there is evidence... Of his involvement in Clover's death and demanding $25,000 for silence. So he writes to this other doctor and says, hey, I know you did this. I'm going to blame you. I'm going to out you. Give me 25,000 or it's 25,000 pounds. Give me 25,000 pounds and I'll stay quiet. This guy's an extortion. Right? Machine. Pretty much the king of it. But like the whole point of extortion is like you have to have something about on, on the other person. Yeah. Because like if... You don't have, if they, they have nothing to do with this and they have no, no idea who that other woman is, then they'd be like, no, I didn't. Yeah, I don't think this worked like, out too well for him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it did. Yeah. Anyway, this Dr. Broadbent gets a hold of Scotland Yard and they basically develop this plan to try to catch him. But no one gets caught. So he, he falls through their clutches yet again. Oh my gosh, okay. April 1892... After a vacation in Canada, Cream comes back to London where he meets... So he's vacationing. He's living it up. I mean, he's got to be making decent money somehow between all this blackmailing and doctoring. Unless he inherited, like, a book. I mean, it's possible. Um, Anyway, he meets this Louise Harvey, also a sex worker, Uh and he offers her some pills and tells her to take them right away. But she's really, like, suspicious. And I'm not really clear whether she needed an abortion or whether he was like, hey, I just got some happy pills for you. Okay. Because, you know, life is pretty miserable when you're a sex worker back then. Um, and maybe she wanted to be happy for a while or something. Yeah. But she go ahead and she, she pretends to swallow the pills. Okay. And she throws them over the bridge of the River Thames. Okay. So she's like, not going to do it. Uh-huh. You seem really sketchy. No, thank you. Um, on April 11th, he meets two prostitutes slash sex workers, Alice Marsh and Emma Strivel. And they spent the night with them. <laughs> he spends the night with them in their flat, which is an apartment, right? Mm-hmm. And he offers them some pills along with a tin of salmon. <laughs> which is like, really? Sure. Um, he leaves soon after and both the women die. Uh, Want to guess what they died of? <laughs> Some, some strychnine poisoning, right? <laughs> okay, so he's not going to get away with this forever, though. Okay. But um, his blackmail letters. Yeah. If he had not written them, he would not have drawn such attention to himself. So not only do the police quickly, you know, make the connection here and figure out that the people he's accusing are innocent, but they notice something in the accusations made by this anonymous letter writer he had referred to the murder of matilda clover and in fact matilda's death actually had been written off as natural causes related to her drinking okay so the police figure out that this false accuser who had written this letter is a serial killer right and they start calling him the lambeth poisoner okay so (laughs) shortly thereafter he meets this policeman from New York City who's visiting London. Sure. And the policeman heard of the Lambeth Poisoner. So evidently the news is like starting to use this term and they're saying, oh my goodness, we have a serial killer. and Another one. 
Yeah, exactly. I think it was big news back then. Yeah. And very salacious. And they were always trying to think of new and more interesting things to catch people's attention in the newspaper mm-hmm. because... They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. Like, the newspaper and the books were, like, their only form of entertainment. Yeah, they're reading the Scarlet Letter to be entertained for crying out loud. So, like, these newspapers would go out of their way to find the most salacious headlines possible so that they could get the reader's attention and sell their newspapers. And this Lambeth Poisoner gave them all the ammunition they needed to make it very interesting. Um, In any case, this policeman had heard of the Lambeth Poisoner, and Cream gives him a tour of the various areas where these victims had lived wait what and so he's just like hey i know where all these victims lived but like i'm not involved in any way basically dope yeah and this guy is like um no you have way too much knowledge of this you're hella suspicious and he goes and tells the, the british police and then the police of scotland yard put it start putting thomas neil cream under surveillance i mean finally and then by doing that, they see that he has a habit of visiting sex workers quite regularly. Uh-huh. And they start conducting this massive investigation in the U.S. and Canada and learn about their suspect's history. Including, oh my gosh, imagine how long that would take. Well, I guess it wouldn't take seriously. that long with a telegram, but still. But still, it, it was probably quite extensive, yeah. um, given that they didn't have as much technology as we have today. But in any case, they find out about his conviction for murder by poison in 1881. Mm. And they're like, what? No, this has to be the same person. Yeah, you think? Um, And they held this inquest in July of 1892, and he reads out a letter signed by Jack the Ripper declaring Dr. Neal innocent. Okay. (laughs) And this, like, people are laughing by then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the jury basically returns the verdict that Matilda Clover had died from strychnine poisoning administered by who else our friend thomas neil cream so okay 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 so at his trial part of his defense is to say jack the ripper wrote me a letter of reference pretty much okay and jack the ripper is not claiming responsibility for these murders he's just <laughs> no. saying hey he's like this me, guy's I'm good jack the ripper. trust me i know that this guy didn't kill these women <laughs> I mean, isn't this crazy and this wasn't a trial for thomas Neil cream it was basically an inquest into the death of this so poor like young a grand woman. Jury. yeah and they basically wow. say she died from strychnine poisoning and thomas Neil cream clearly gave it to her right so they arrest thomas Neil cream june of 1892 for the murder of matilda clover Mm-hmm. And he was formally charged at that point for the deaths of Clover, Donworth, Marsh, and Shrivel. And the attempted murder of Harvey, as well as all the extortion that he tried right. to write all those letters for. And from the start, he basically was saying, you know what? I'm Dr. Thomas Neal, not Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. Oh, you got a mistake. Sure, sure. <laughs> you got a mistake. I'm Classic Thomas Neal. Call me Thomas Neal, not Thomas Neal Cream. So, like, clearly this guy's real weird. Yeah. Um, His trial lasted from the 17th to the 21st of October, 1892. So, quickly, that went pretty quick. Yeah. Deliberation took about 12 minutes. Oh, my Lord. And the jury was like, "Mm, guilty, 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 guilty. And they sentenced him to death. Yeah. So, about a month after his conviction, so this also went pretty fast, in November of 1892, they hang him at Newgate Prison. Mm-hmm. It was customary back then for all executed criminals um, to have their body buried the same day beneath the flagstones of the prison along with other executed criminals. Interesting. Okay. And they would mark it with only one initial. Oh, okay. So it's like a pauper's Pretty much. Grade. Well, and then probably okay. to keep, you know, from the celebrity status, people coming and, and, yeah. and putting things on the grave and just, you know doing that kind of thing, making him a celebrity or whatever. However, (laughs) they dug up his body in 1902 and moved it to London's Municipal Cemetery. I don't know why I find that word so hard to say. And he's now marked in an unmarked, excuse me, and he's now buried in an unmarked grave in section 339. I don't know. It's possible that they thought it was inhumane to bury them all in this one area and and thought, oh, we're going to give him a proper burial. Okay. Um, Evidently, the guy that was responsible for hanging cream claimed that his last words were, I am Jack the Ripper, basically. Ooh. Um, but the claims are not substantiated. and Well, he did have that letter of reference. Yeah, exactly. 
I think he was just doing it for the fame and fortune, essentially. Yeah, for sure. But police and other people were like, eh, we don't think so. Um, right. And he was in jail at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders right. in 1888. Yeah, like it's documented he was in jail in the States. So it was impossible for him to be Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So, and people that study Jack the Ripper speculate that he had bribed, excuse me, people that study Jack the Ripper speculate that Cream bribed officials and let him out of prison before his official release, that they basically let him out, that he bribed officials. Um, or So they're saying they do, the people that study Jack the Ripper say that Cream bribed officials in Illinois to get out of prison and went to England and committed the Jack the Ripper much. murders? Okay. Or that, and I, th- I think I heard this about H.H. H. Holmes, too. They suspected that Thomas Neal Cream had somebody that looked just like him serve in his place. <laughs> okay, I mean, sure. Right. And See, I've heard, like, I've heard the stories, like, the speculation that H.H. H. Holmes is Jack the Ripper. I've not heard that he used a body double. Yeah. Um, I heard that they okay. used a body double and that he didn't actually die and okay. ended up running off and, and doing other things after this person supposedly died sure, in sure, this sure, place. Sure, but, sure, sure, sure. Um, it's pretty unlikely. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot of evidence by Illinois authorities, newspapers, solicitors, family, and Cream himself that kind of proves otherwise. Right. And what's gross is that they said that there were people that were there, and they said that basically <clears throat> he was so scared that he lost control of his body functions and stammered, I am ejaculating. Uh-huh. Oh, he said that? Which could have... Which could have been mistaken for I am Jack the Ripper or whatever. Okay. Which is absolutely Of all wow. the far-fetched things that have been said today. <laughs> right? <laughs> that um, might be the most. And one of the wildest parts about this is, like, what is the motivation behind all these poisonings? So most people say that the cream was a sadist who enjoyed the thought of victims agonizing deaths and his control over them. I mean, well, because that was the deal with Ted Bundy, right? And and Dahmer was, like, trying to reanimate people. So, like, it kind of has that feel to it. Like, he's experimenting in some kind of way to see different ways he can kill people or if he wants to, like, if he's torturing people, how long it takes him to die. Like, it kind of seems like he's, like, running scientific experiments. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was also, like, really interested in money, clearly, because yeah. he kept trying to bribe people. So some people kind of think that he planned all these murders um, to profit from them, to write the blackmail notes and all oh. that kind of stuff. Um, He's not a good blackmailer. I would not, I would not no. put that as a strength. And his one male victim, Daniel Stott, was committed in the hope that his widow would share the deceased estate with Thomas Neal Cream. Uh, sure. Um, and he's also suspected of murdering his wife, Flora Brooks, mm-hmm, in 1877. Obviously. And at least four other women who died in his care while undergoing abortions. Wow. I can't believe I've not heard of this guy. It was like, what, five years after Jack the Ripper? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. I mean, a very close period of time. And what's wild about this case is, and I, um, I got to find this picture, is I was I had my chimneys cleaned at our house in mm-hmm. Illinois. Um Hang on. Let me find this picture. Trying first, to okay? figure out how that's have... related. Uh, no, it is. <laughs> um, because he lived not too far from me. Wait, what? Thomas Neal Cream lived not too huh? far from me when he was living in Illinois. Oh, my God. Um, and, okay, so these guys, I hired this these chimney cleaners to come into my house and clean my chimneys. And we have a really old house. Right. Um, that was built shortly after... Thomas Neal Cream was in the area and I was kind of chatting with these chimney cleaners and I was like hey you know you guys have probably cleaned some pretty interesting houses in the area and they were saying yeah we've been in all the houses up and down this street cleaning their chimneys and fixing things for them and whatnot and um, we get a lot of interesting requests and I was like well what was your most interesting one and they said that they had been called to the house that supposedly Thomas Neal Cream lived in in Illinois, uh-huh. back when he lived here. And I said, who's Thomas Neal Cream? And they said, you don't know who that is? The serial killer, Thomas Neal Cream. And I was like, and I looked it up immediately, and they said, let me show you a picture of the house. <laughs> they said that they did not take the case because when they went in to inspect the chimneys, they said it was just way too creepy. <gasps> and it's really kind of this unobtrusive, sort of like normal-looking white house 
in like a normal rural neighborhood. Like it's not like a super city part. He didn't yeah. live like in the city. He lived a little ways out in the suburbs, yeah. but it's not too far from where we live. Did you go drive by it? Um, I did not. Oh. Um, I don't have the exact address. This guy oh, just okay. sent me a picture of the house. And I was like, holy moly. But very, very interesting. So Thomas Neil Cream and his local, you know, connection to my house, basically. Seriously. He, he lived probably, they said, about a half an hour, 15, eh, 15, 20 minutes from where I live. Oh, my gosh. In this really kind of normal-looking white two-story house. <laughs> and I wonder if he lived there as part of like a boarding house where they rented rooms or if he owned right. the whole house, like if he had the money to own the whole house. I mean, it sounds like he was, you know, somewhat, he had some money. Yeah, it sounded like he had means of some sort. I mean, it's not a fancy house. It's just a really kind of standard two-story, probably three-bedroom house yeah. with one bathroom and just not super fancy or anything. It's, still... you know, it's not super big. It's probably a 1,200-square-foot house, but still... This That's guy lived. wild. Thomas Neil Cream and his connection to me in Illinois. So I thought that was interesting, which is why I decided to do this story. Yeah. I'll post a picture of the house on Instagram. Yeah. And if anybody knows where it is, don't like go by there and like set up in front of it's, their yard. Somebody it's lives like, there now. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's obvious that the house is not. Um, I think at the time that these guys had come to do the chimney cleanings, no one lived there. It was oh, by the ooh. owner and the house was empty and they were just super creeped out. By that it. does so add to the like, creep factor. No, but I, I believe somebody lives in that house now. Sure. So it's very, very interesting. Wow. Anything else you want to add before we wrap this interesting case up? No, I swear I've never heard of this, and this is mind-blowing. I'm going to read so much about this and Jack the Ripper because I feel like it's been a while since I've read about Jack the Ripper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy had a different MO than Jack the Ripper. Like, he didn't he didn't stab people and... and Except, <clears> yeah. The, he didn't cut them open and, and disembowel them or anything like right. Jack the Ripper did. He poisoned them. So, like, it's a little bit of a different MO. It, it is different, but it's also, like, it's very similar in the victims and the, like, methodology and things. Like, it, there are similarities to it. And, like, because a lot of people think Jack the Ripper was in the States at one point, too, you know? Yep. Interesting, wow. interesting stuff. Anyway... Um, we will go ahead and wrap this episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, Instagram? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we're going to post pictures of that creepy house and of Thomas Hill Cream and all that any good other, stuff there. Any other creepy related stuff yeah. we can find. <laughs> and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.